tennis fans, and welcome to another episode of Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. You can follow us on Twitter at MatchpointCan. We are on Instagram as well under the name Matchpoint Canada. And on today's episode, well, we'll be covering the state of tennis in our country because unfortunately with the latest news that Coop Rogers from Montreal has been postponed until 2021 due to the latest provincial measures in Quebec, uh, we are going to chat with CEO Michael Downey. And obviously, Mike, this is very unfortunate news, I, I think. But at the same time, I, I feel like we sensed it was coming. Yeah, it's not a surprise. It's just it hits kind of hard. I don't know about you, but for me, it was just, you know, I was holding out hope, even if it was unrealistic hope. And uh, we'll chat about this a bit later. But now that that it, it seems to me uh, with Montreal falling that, that Toronto likely won't be too far behind. So um, it is a tough blow to take to for, for tennis fans in our country. Um, on, on the other side of today's episode, we uh, we do catch up with another tennis personality related to the Rogers Cup, and that's everyone's favorite uh, MC from the Rogers Cup in Toronto, Ken Christina. He's also the director of Mayfair Tennis Clubs here in the greater Toronto area, and uh, he joins us to share some of his good stories and tips on how to keep your game sharp during the quarantine as well. Yeah, and I think uh, everybody's going to need these tips because we know everything is shut down in Toronto until at least July 1st, and then uh, those provincial measures in Quebec going till the end of August, and I I wonder if we see that change happening in Ontario and and the rest of our provinces. Uh, But for now, you, you simply can't go out on a tennis court and play uh it's it's just not feasible and uh, i've seen a few courts i don't know about you but i've seen a few courts uh, around the gta uh no nets up or like covered off with with caution tape like you can't play yeah they don't want us out there and it's understandable uh i have hardly as you know had any chances over the last few years to play any tennis under the the best of times under normal (laughs) circumstances just because i'm so busy at home I've actually picked up the racket more. This is so strange to say. I picked it up more since this social distancing and isolation has started because I'm trying to find creative ways with my kids to do things. So we're hitting tennis balls and bucket balls into the hockey net in the backyard. And, uh, you know, I'm ready to try Roger Federer's uh, challenge against uh, the (laughs) fence in my backyard. Uh, I'm going to come back stronger than ever because I'm playing actually more tennis or not full tennis, but getting more tennis practice now. Than I did before, actually. Well, that's uh, that's good. Uh, I, I suppose you found one positive there. Uh, <laughs> one one portion we will get to later in the episode, which I think will be fun. And we saw this trend on Twitter is building the perfect tennis player, men's and women's. So going over uh, all of these shots, forehand, backhand, uh, and so on, crafting the perfect player. And there's so much disagreement uh, over over matters like this. And uh, not one right an- not one answer is the right answer. So. I, I'm curious uh, because I haven't seen your list and you haven't seen mine, uh, how it will align or clash. I'm looking forward to disagreeing with you and, and getting into it. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've had one of those days at home where it feels like I've been living through a live John McEnroe match. So um, <laughs> okay. I, uh, I got a lot of angst to, to get out here. I'm sorry if I direct it your way. No, that is uh, no problem. But uh, we'll, we'll start with the Coop Rogers news. And I had a chance to speak at length with uh, the CEO and president of Tennis Canada, Michael Downey. And really, it was him speaking at length in this interview, as he will detail uh, the, the decision that they were forced to make, obviously coming from the province in Quebec, uh, on the state of Coop Rogers and the state of Tennis Canada, and how this is going to affect them going forward. So without further ado, uh, let's give a listen to my interview with Michael Downey. 
I am now pleased to be joined by Tennis Canada President and CEO Michael Downey. Uh, now, Michael, obviously, uh, unfortunate circumstances is what brings about this interview. And I will start, I guess, of course, with this weekend's news that Coupe Rogers, Rogers Cup in Montreal has been postponed uh, due to COVID-19. Uh, when was this decision agreed upon and, and how difficult was it to make? Well, at the end of the day, we have to realize that um, government has the say here because it's all about public health. So in this case, the uh, the government of Quebec made a decision. It was earlier than we thought it would come, but we always thought it might come. And they made the decision um, kind of on Friday, and it was public on Saturday. And uh, if I've got my days right, and then what we had to do is is we had to liaise with the WTA because officially the double WTA has to cancel the event. We can't self-cancel. So that happened on Saturday when we put out the joint release with the WTA. And uh, but before all of, all of that took place, uh, how many alternative ideas or uh if any were being explored before announcing that cancellation, was there ever a thought of, could you delay this till the fall? Could you hold it elsewhere? Yeah, the problem we face is we're part, problem is, is the strength of what we're part of. We're part of the WTA tour. And so we can't move independently, like say a Grand Slam can, like in the case of Roland Garros and the French Federation. So we're part of a, a very vibrant tour and we have a week in that calendar. So, you know, we would always be open to going later uh, in the year. Like weather-wise, we probably could have staged in Montreal through early October. But the problem you face is those weeks are taken. The U.S. Uh, U.S. Open is in, in early September, and the French Open or Roland Garros is now in late September. So there was nowhere for us to actually move in that scenario. I see. And uh, obviously, uh, we, we have a unique tournament here in Canada because we do obviously have the divide between the two cities uh, hosting in Toronto and Montreal and and the women and men alternating. Uh, now, I think a lot of people here in the city of Toronto and the, the greater Toronto area are wondering, what is the status right now of Rogers Cup in Toronto? Well, it's still a go uh, because we have a date in uh, in mid-August and we're ready to go if we get continue to get that green light. Uh, there's no doubt the decision that was made on the weekend for our Montreal tournament probably doesn't um, uh, mean great things for our Toronto tournament. And I say that because even though the decision of staging will come from the government of Ontario and the city of Toronto, they already have a ban on major events to June 30th. Uh, they they brought that in a couple weeks ago, and they said they would review that date on a on a kind of every two weeks. So you never know what the government is going to be doing now that the Quebec government has actually made the decision to ban major events out to August 30th. But we're ready to go uh, if we get that continued green light. But to be honest, we think um, there's a very good chance that Toronto is going to be cancelled as well. You know, there's only 330 miles between Toronto and Montreal. And I think the things we've just got to realize is public health has to come first. There's no doubt about that. And it's difficult at this point in time, given um, the uh, the virus and the risk of it potentially coming back, that when you're looking at staging a major event that might have fifteen to 20,000 on site a day and requires you know, circa 100 international players to fly in from around the world, 
These are tough conditions, and government has to look at the safety of the local population. So while we're crossing our fingers that we'll be able to, to implement and execute a great tournament in Toronto, but the chances are very slim. And um, obviously, big picture, uh, what, what, what are the ramifications really for these decisions, I guess, for Tennis Canada moving forward? Because obviously, these two major events uh, surely are sort of the big money makers uh, for Tennis Canada. How do you move forward uh, and recoup those losses if we are without both tournaments this year? Well, it's dire. There, there's no doubt about that. You know, the first thing I should say is, you know, we do not have insurance for for this type of uh, force majeure situation. Quite frankly, none of the major tennis tournaments do except for Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. Um, so that does expose us. And you're right. You know, one of our strengths and one of the things we're most proud about is our independence from government that uh, we're in a situation that we do run two very successful tennis tournaments that generate significant profit, that we redirect to growing the sport in the country. And we're unique in that way. And and the reason I say that is, you know, like we we get about a million dollars from Sport Canada and own the podium, and we're very supportive of that million dollars. But it's less than one, it's about 1% of our gross revenues. And it's only about 6% of what we spend in tennis development annually. So the rest comes from the Rogers Cups in Toronto, Montreal. It comes from some very generous donors and other sources of revenue. So we're very exposed here, like extremely exposed. And I made the point on um, an interview with TSN on the weekend when I was asked the same question, you know, what is the, the loss we're looking at? And I said, it's north of 10 million. It is easily north of 10 million and a lot more than 10 million. So we're in a situation that we, we've already lost one tournament. The chances are we'll probably lose the second. And so we're planning for the inevitable. And the two things that unfortunately we have to look at are a reduction in our spending in tennis development. Basically, over a month ago, we we canceled just about everything for the spring and the summer. And quite frankly, that was an easier decision because tennis is halted. And quite frankly, we don't want people going out and playing tennis right now because Mm -hmm. we want people with social distancing. Um, So it was easier to cancel things in the months of kind of April, May and June and July and August because we actually don't think there'll be a lot of tennis played. But we're going to be in a situation that we're going to cut deeper than that, and we're going to have to restructure our organization. There's no doubt about it. The the employee group at Tennis Canada knows that will come eventually. We've been very transparent about the potential impact here because communication is a transparent communication is the best way of leading in these type of situations. So those are things that we're assessing right now, but it won't just be a one-year impact. When you lose this level of, of money in one year, it will have repercussions out into 21 and 22. So we're probably going to be forced to, while we know the Rogers Cups will come back next year and they'll come back in force and they'll come back in 22 and they will continue to be successful tennis tournaments that generate a fair bit of profit, we need to get those losses back. And that means we're not going to be able to spend as much money in tennis development, not only this year, but also in 21 and 22, because you've got to return those losses. Like that's just the way business works. And uh, we will for sure seek government support 
But in fairness to government right now, government is doing the right thing. They are looking after public health. This is about the safety of Canadians first. And they also want to make sure Canadians are employed. So that's going to be their focus for the next few months. So we think it may be be as late as the fall before they're really going to entertain uh, requests for additional grants. And we think we've got a great case. Like, I'm really rambling here, but I think these are points I want to make, is we think we've got a great case for more government support in 21 and 22 and 23. You know, we've done our research, and and there's about 25 national sports organizations that get more money from Sport Canada and own the podium than Tennis Canada does. And I'm not making a judgment on what they get, but it's largely because we've been self-sufficient. Um, so therefore, you know, maybe our time has come that we justify more government support because of this crisis. But I also want to just say some really good things about tennis and why the government should look at tennis as a sport to invest in. Like there's 7 million people that play this great, great game. and Very few sports can actually talk about, you know, nearly a 50-50 gender balance in participation. Mm-hmm. And we're also a sport that's called cradle to grave. You, know, you can play it as a three-year-old and you can play it as a 95-year-old. And there's very few sports that penetrate the seniors' population like tennis does. And, and that's a very important message to government. We have 4 million people that play this sport frequently in the summer. That's a significant part of the population. And we've seen phenomenal growth with kids playing tennis. There's a quarter million kids that play frequently in the summer now. And we also know from our research that this is a sport that actually is very popular among new immigrants, largely because it's a global sport. So people come to this country for a better life or for whatever reason, and they, they tennis is kind of in their bailiwick. So we, we have very high participation among new Canadians. And, you know, you and I have talked about this in, in prior interviews. We're very proud of the high performance program and how well Canadians are doing yeah. in the global scene, whether it was Milos and Jeannie, who were the first entries into the National Training Centre, or Bianca, who trained in our Toronto program, or Felix, who tra- is basically trained since he was 10 or 11 years of age in our Montreal National Training Centre. So we're very proud of this program because of the results that it's achieved. And we just have to think that government's going to look at the partic- participation deliverance of tennis, but they're also going to look over and say, hey, maybe we should be helping protecting that high performance program because it actually is working and it's generate, helping to generate because the players ultimately go out and hit the ball, but yeah. it's helping to develop some phenomenal talent that are inspiring the nation and inspiring people to follow the sport and pick up a racket. So these are just some of the reasons why we think our case will be compelling but at the end of the day, I think the government's doing the right thing. They're focusing on health and well-being and um, in employment right now. But as soon as that door's open, and it's been open, I've already talked to some people in the Ministry of Canadian Heritage, and they are concerned about our situation. Well, it's it's fascinating because the last time we we spoke to you on this podcast, actually, we we were reflecting on 2019, sort of viewing it in the light of 
probably being the the best year uh, alone for for Tennis Canada, surely just generated by the impact, obviously, of Bianca Andreescu winning the U.S. Open. But not only that, how that resonated throughout the country in terms of the number of players we saw playing this sport. So surely that's that can be a reference point as well, you would think. Absolutely. You know, I wrote a lot of uh, Canadians who have been very generous to Tennis Canada through their individual donations on the weekend. And I had two or three of them wrote back and said just that. They just said, this is shocking that where Canadian tennis was at the end of last year. And we know Canadian tennis was the envy of so many nations around the world. And now to be kind of stopped in its tracks, like that's really what we're talking about. Stopped in its track because Basically, as I just said, we make so much of our money from what I call a one-week wonder. It's Mm -hmm. called the Rogers Cup in Toronto and Coupe Rogers in Montreal. And that is just devastating. Forget about its impact on Tennis Canada. It's devastating for tennis in Canada, which is really what we're talking about here. So hopefully we'll be in a situation that uh, once the dust settles... Um, we'll be in a situation that we can go to government because I know our case is compelling and I know they're concerned. Like I've had discussions, I've had two discussions recently with a a senior policy advisor with the Ministry of Canadian Heritage and and he was blown away by the financial impact that uh, the loss of one or both of these tournaments is going to have on this organization and then the trickle-down effect on participation, on high performance, on coach development. Like there's 3,300 coaches that are part of the Tennis Professionals Association that that we invest in. So, you know, this is a, a phenomenal sport. But mm-hmm. I will say, um, irrespective of what happens, it's because it's a phenomenal sport, Tennis Canada will live for another day and tennis in Canada will continue to prosper because it is a phenomenal sport. And we've got a lot of people that want to see tennis in this country continue to be strong and buoyant. And uh, we know they're going to come to, first of all, our support, but also more importantly, the support of the sport itself in a general sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I also have to ask because uh, you're talking about the impact of our high performance programmings uh, and coaching development. Um how are Tennis Canada employees be being impacted uh, at this time? And is uh, major layoff something uh, they are having to fear right now? Well, yes. Uh, like, you know, as I said earlier, we've been very transparent because that, that is the best approach. So mm-hmm. the, the, the employees know the profitability of these tournaments. They know the type of losses we're looking at because we've been very transparent with them. They know change is coming. They don't know the specifics of that because, quite frankly, we haven't finalized all of that. And we're also trying to figure out whether we actually qualify for the new federal wage subsidy program. You have to be able to show, I think it's now a 15% revenue loss year over year in March and 30% in April and 30% in May. Right. And it's just the way that system's being built. It's not right or wrong. The government's done something to try to make sure that companies have to prove that they're in dire straits. We're in a unique situation because we're going to lose about 99% of our revenue in one week when Coop Rogers falls and if Rogers Cup falls. But it may be outside those guidelines, which is so odd. 
but there are a lot of seasonal operations lobbying the government right now because it's not just Tennis Canada. If you're if you're a, a tour company that makes all its biz, all its money in July and August, you're probably saying I'm not going to be I'm going to have at least a thirty percent decline in July and August, but it doesn't fit that March, April, May window. So we're in a situation where we're trying to figure that out because hopefully we qualify and that means there'll be some money from government that we can actually underwrite the salaries of our employees for at least a couple months. Um, But again, we're not 100% sure. But as I said earlier, and we've been transparent with our employees on this, this is not a short-term problem. This is a longer-term problem because of the sheer loss that we're looking at this year because of potentially losing two uh, very successful tennis tournaments. So it's not a three-month problem that we have. We need to look out two or three years and restructure, restructure our business to ensure our viability, which we will ensure, but also then rebuild both the organization and the investment in Tennis Canada. It's the only way we can look at it. We're not... We're not looking at a short-term problem. We're actually looking, sadly, at a longer-term problem. Right, and uh, I, I would presume you, you'd at least like to presume that uh, the government could mitigate some of those losses, as you mentioned, like the 30% revenue loss. But uh, with all of that a revenue stream coming in in one week time in Montreal and Toronto, uh, that, that's just a different type of scenario uh, overall. Uh, a couple of viewers were wondering, uh, you know, as, as of now, Rogers Cup Toronto, as you said, stands, um, and we, we're still seeing the commercials every now and then on, on TV. Why? I guess my question is, why wait? We can't cancel. Oh, you, so actually, you can't? We cannot self-cancel. At the end of the day, that's okay. the decision of the ATP, Right. but it'll also probably be the decision of government, more so than anything else, because government has the trump card here. Uh, you know, they have to look after public health. And if they feel there is a risk that comes with staging a major event like the Rogers Cup, then they'll make the decision that they think is right. And this is this balancing act that government is now facing between public health and driving the economy. But I think we've got to be pragmatic that while I personally and, and you know, the 200,000 fans that come to the Rogers Cup love it, they would also sit back and probably say, look, we got to realize this is, this is a discretionary event. Yeah. And in the scheme of things, um, it's not all that important when you're looking at the tragedy that's happening from this virus. Mm-hmm. It's not only people losing their jobs, but obviously losing their lives. And we've all been touched on that. Like I've got two or three cases that are very close to home that are just shocking and um, we've just got to stand behind what government wants to do here. But if they give us a green light, we're ready. But I think in all fairness, um, given what's happening here, uh, we're probably going to lose this event. Yes, and uh, I, I think a lot of people would understand that, no no matter how unfortunate it is. Uh, of course, here at the podcast, it's one of our favorite events to, to attend every year. Uh, I guess last question but before I let you go. Uh, not only do we have Rogers Cup in Montreal and, and Rogers Cup in Toronto, but we, we've seen the strength of a few events, uh, you know, in, in other parts of this country with the Challenger in Calgary and, and Vancouver and event other events in Quebec like in Gatineau. Is it something maybe Tennis Canada could explore in the coming few years uh, of looking at an ATP say 250 or 500 or a WTA international in, in one of those hotspot cities like a Calgary or Vancouver, like a bigger event uh, that, that could bring in uh, additional revenue. 
Absolutely. And it's something that we continue to, to look around at. You know, when you look at especially cities like Vancouver, which are just, you know, not only one of the most beautiful cities to live in, but it's also a, a mecca for, for sports that uh, we have looked in the past and we will continue to look in the future. But I honestly think given where we are today, it's going to be about hunkering down and making sure that the organization is strong coming out of this financial crisis and that we can put on two phenomenal tournaments next year because that's what our fans deserve, that's what our sponsors want, and we will deliver that. So I think right now it's probably more about sticking to our knitting and doing it really well, and it'll be probably, if we're looking at other tournaments or buying them, they've probably been pushed off, and they just have to be because there won't be the resources available to actually invest in new tournaments. Right. We need to invest in the ones that drive our business right now, and, and uh, that's unfortunate, but that's kind of the way most businesses are probably going to be run this way, about you know, turning inward, making sure they're viable for the future. And in our case, uh, we know the Rogers Cups are going to come back roaring next year. Um, you know, we'll have time to plan for them, and they are juggernauts. And let's just hope we're in a situation where uh, things have stabilized in this world that will allow us to actually put on those tournaments like we have in the past, and I'm, I'm confident that will happen. Yeah, certainly. Uh, Michael, thanks so much uh, for joining us on the program this week. I obviously wish uh, we're under different circumstances, but uh, I appreciate appreciate you be, being so forthcoming with uh, with the situation. Thanks for the opportunity, and stay safe. Yes, you as well. There you have it, President and CEO of Tennis Canada, Michael Downey. And uh, look, he paints uh, a grim picture, but I appreciated him being forthright with us and honest that this is something that is going to hit Tennis Canada, not just for this year, but uh, a couple years to come. Yeah, in big ways. Player development, uh, facility funding, um, all sorts of employees, obviously, full-time employees, part-time employees that have probably, you know, had to be laid off temporarily through this, which is affecting families. And so, you know, really a tennis tournament, you wouldn't realize perhaps the, the far-reaching implications it would have of not being held, but they're certainly very impactful in Montreal. And as Michael alluded to, it seems uh, highly likely that the same fate will befall the Rogers Cup tournament in Toronto as I said early in the episode, it, it really hit me hard when I was listening to his um, interview with you. And he said it, you know, very straight up. And, and he seems to be doing as best as, as you could hope to be doing with the news, being the spokesperson really for Tennis Canada. But it hit me hard to hear it on many, many levels, growing up as a fan of the tournament, now working in media and looking forward to, you know, not just seeing live tennis, but reconnecting with people that I've grown close with at this tournament over the years from the people that greet you in the media room, the people in the lunch room, mm. uh, the volunteers at the gates and the ushers, you form these little relationships with these people that, yeah, we might not touch base and, and interact throughout the year, but for that one week each year, for those nine days each year, they're kind of part of your, your tennis family. And so I'm going to miss seeing those people. I'm going to be a miss really miss being a part of that. Uh, you know, when or if the, the ax falls on the tournament here in, in Toronto, but it's it's not surprising because even if things start getting back to normal, you know, late spring, early summer, uh, there's no way governments are going to lift restrictions to the point where you can have events 
they're going to host hundreds of thousands of spectators uh, over a week-long tournament like this. Yeah, these types of events, uh, particularly in Montreal, it sees traffic of over 250,000 people in a one-week period. And, uh, you know, say for Toronto, even if we did have restrictions lifted, say everything was back to normal, you know, fingers crossed come July, I don't know that a lot of people will have a comfort level uh, of going to an event such as this where you are going to be surrounded by people in a, in a jam-packed space uh, watching tennis matches. I, I don't think people are going to be ready for it this year, even if we were to have uh, these restrictions lifted. Uh, so as uh, Michael Downey kind of painted the picture, uh, look, there, it, he feels like there's a 1% chance of this tournament happening, and uh, ultimately it is not up to them whether whether they cancel or not. Uh, they're, they're just waiting on the next move. That's right. And like Michael mentioned, government, uh, the government in Quebec made the decision uh, before our government here in Ontario to extend the, the ban of big gatherings like this. He talked about considering pushing it to early October, as far as early October, but it's not a decision that they're able to make on right. their own because with, uh, you know, uh, conjunction with the WTA and other tournaments, they don't have the authority to just move it in the same way that, say, as he said, the French Open did uh, mm-hmm. as a Grand Slam. Um, I, I couldn't even imagine the tournament being held in October. It'd be kind of chilly out, outside for that, not to mention windy fall weather. But uh, obviously they explored all sorts of alternates and realized that none of them were, were feasible. Uh, I did enjoy listening to him speak on the positive side of reasons why he feels the government should invest in tennis as a sport uh, when it comes time to hopefully getting a little bit of financial aid. And uh, tennis is certainly a lifelong sport and also one where you have a male-female split that is really almost unlike any other sport on the planet. Yeah, I think it is really probably the ultimate sport to look to in terms of equality. And uh, look, if we look at just the results alone in 2019, forget everything we were building up towards over the past decade plus, uh, that alone, I think the 2019 season speaks for itself, uh, how this nation can perform in the sport of tennis when you're talking about player development and and coaching. Uh, So I I really hope the government does uh, invest in more funding because uh, whether or not they do, there is going to be a loss uh, financially but if you could mitigate that just a little bit it it would make a big difference for the sport going forward yeah at this time with all the young talent that we have uh, singles doubles men women Mm -hmm. what a shame that we can't host our tournament the year that you know we've got a legitimate threat on on both sides in Montreal and in Toronto and you know fortunately with the ages of our talented young players that should be a reality uh, for the foreseeable future so 2021 uh, a couple more years of development from the Denis Shapovalovs, Felix Ogialiasims, Bianca Andreescu, Leila Annie Fernandez, and uh, hopefully when we do come back to it here in Canada, uh, there's there's lots of reason to to get excited and and some big results on the court for Canadian tennis fans to to get back to watching that live tennis that they they're so passionate about yeah absolutely and mike i know for you you have uh, very close ties to montreal uh what will you maybe miss most about uh seeing coop rogers this summer do you have a, a favorite sort of memory uh, of the tournament i mean that tournament for me that's where i grew up i didn't move to ontario until i was 16 17 um and even though now i've spent more than half my life here in ontario i still certainly feel like montreal is definitely home for me uh, not just because the Habs play there, by the way, but uh, I had to find a way to drop that in somewhere in the podcast. <laughs> today. Uh, but just the electricity, just the electricity and the passion of the fans there. 
Uh, Montreal has kind of a European vibe for anyone who's been there or visited there. You've certainly picked up on that. And the electricity of the crowd at uh, Jerry Park has always just been something that is uh, really, really special at a tennis event. So I'm going to miss that. I'm going to miss the fact that, uh, you know, people there are going to not have that opportunity to embrace the sport they love uh, in person. And in terms of favorite memories from there, I mean, I've got so many. And, you know, it's funny, as a kid, the memories are on the practice courts because you're, you're going there and you're getting autographs and you're seeing your favorite players up close. And I've got tons of autographs. I wish I could remember where I stored them all, but somewhere in a box at my parents' place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I just remember those kind of moments and interactions with players. And in terms of matches, um, Sampras Agassi in 95 was a really big one. Uh, where the two of them were 1-2 in the game. And uh, Agassi was actually winning uh, more often than not against uh, Pete uh, in the lead-up to the U.S. Open that summer, including their final in Montreal. And then Sampras flipped the, uh, the switch for the, uh, the U.S. Open and, uh, and won when it mattered the most. And then another Agassi match actually comes to mind in uh, Montreal, and that was 10 years later in 2005, where Agassi was... Um, near the end, uh, very end of his career, but still made it to the finals that summer in Montreal against a young up-and-coming Rafa Nadal, who beat the American in in three close sets. And that was kind of a a changing of the guard type Mm -hmm. of moment and contrasting sort of uh, styles, the lefty, the the two-hand backhand by Agassi. And uh, and the crowd was in Agassi's corner because he was the veteran and he had won fans over throughout the course of his career. But it was pretty cool to see Nadal come out and show that, yeah, I'm not just a clay court guy. I can uh, I can win on the hard courts, too. Yeah, those were the uh, sleeveless uh, khaki days uh, of Rafael Nadal, and uh, there's some great highlights from that match. For me personally, uh, the, the first uh, tournament I, I had officially covered as, as press was actually 2017 Rogers Cup in Montreal when the men were there. And uh, first match I sit down in the press box to watch, actually, uh, well, night match, first night match, I should say, is uh, Denis Shapovalov uh, beating Rafael Nadal. So Come that, on. that is that, that is, was your first match. Well, first night match, never, actually. I yeah, saw, I saw gonna, Roger. I saw Roger Federer in the afternoon, but uh, you'll never be able to top that excitement. If that was your first night match in Montreal, what a what a doozy. Holy yeah, so that that of course is going to be the the lasting memory uh, of Denis Shapovalov beating Nadal, his sort of coming out party, and and the tournament that he produced going forward, getting all the way to the semifinals uh, until uh, Sasha Zverev defeated him. So that is uh, the standout memory for me. Um, look, tennis will be back in Montreal. Coop Rogers will come back. We just have to wait uh, another year, and uh, likely the same fate will hit Rogers Cup in Toronto again. We just have to be patient. You're listening to. Matchpoint Canada. You can find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. We are also on Instagram. And I just wanted to touch before we get to uh, my interview with Ken Christina, touch on some players who maybe are benefiting from the break in some way in, in terms of getting their bodies back uh, in, in good health. Uh, I know Bianca Andrescu had mentioned she felt like Miami Open could have been a possibility for her. She had pulled out of Indian Wells before the tournament was actually cancelled. And uh, she's done a couple interviews since and says uh, meditation's been a big focus for her. She's been very active at home and ha- has the benefit of having a full set of like gym equipment there. But because of bylaws ar- around here, she still isn't able to, to get on a tennis court. So that is at the same time a little bit problematic. But you have to think when we do get tennis again, uh, we will get a very healthy Bianca, you would think. 
Yeah, healthy Bianca and uh, and healthy for a lot of other players as well. Uh, Roger Federer, as we knew, who was going to be out until the grass court season. Uh, Andy Murray, who'd been dealing with a pelvic injury. Uh, poor guy, after all, he's been through in the last couple of years. Juan Martin Del Potro, who, when he's back, boy, is one of the most fierce players on the ATP Tour. And I just oh, I hate it when I try to think of how much he could have accomplished in his career mm-hmm. if it weren't for injuries. Uh, but there are a slew of players who are benefiting in terms of just uh, not feeling rushed, I guess, to get back to the tennis world. And, and hopefully when things do resume, we've got a, a full slate of healthy players. Although I wonder who's going to be the first victim who injures themselves during this hiatus from tennis right. in training, whether it be uh, just from training a little bit too hard in the house or perhaps trying something a little bit too creative, uh, one of these hundred-something challenges that just goes awry. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm joking just because, gosh, we gotta, we got to still find ways to laugh. But yes. um, hopefully everyone does stay healthy as they're getting through this time period and, and we get all the big names back and ready to go whenever tennis does resume. Yeah, that is my hope. And uh, hopefully we get tennis up and running uh, as soon as we can in the GTA. But obviously you're not rushing it. Uh, not only is our next guest who I, I spoke to... Uh, the director of tennis clubs for the Mayfair clubs in the GTA, but he's also a very familiar voice at Rogers Cup. And uh, I'll share with you guys now uh, my interview with Ken Crocina. Now happy to be joined by uh, Ken Crozina, who's uh, tennis director for the Mayfair Clubs and also uh, voice of the Rogers Cup here in Canada. Ken, thanks so much for, for taking the time. And I'll, I'll just start now. Uh, how are you coping uh, with, with this downtime uh, during this obviously uh, scary um, unknown time, really? Yeah, thanks for having me. It, it certainly has been tricky for those of us in the tennis world that are used to playing tennis, teaching tennis, uh, watching tennis. There's, it's certainly been a change, and uh, I'm happy to report that, you know, we've been closed at Mayfair since May, uh, March the 16th, and we did that obviously for the protection of our clientele and protection of, uh, you know, people in the GTA for social distancing. So, um, but I've have had the chance to play a little bit of tennis but really only on the street with a neighbor from quite a distance. And we would never touch the tennis balls by hand. We would only use our rackets, but just for about 15 minutes one day, but certainly have missed being on the tennis court and coaching and watching people enjoy the game that I love so much. So as I'm sure all of your listeners can attest to, it's, it's tough being away from the court for sure. Yeah, it's certainly a challenge, and and I've felt that as well. Of course, my my tennis club, of course, shut down a, a, in a very similar time frame. And I guess the challenging part is we don't have an exact date when you know we can reopen. I, I guess Ken, are are you sort of closely mo- monitoring those types of health considerations and and seeing just when maybe Mayfair and and all these other clubs can get back open and people can get back out on the courts. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we're certainly looking forward to the day when it's it's possible to reopen. We certainly know that the health and well-being of Torontonians and Canadians and the world comes first. Um, but I think Mayfair, along with all of the other tennis clubs, will be ready um, when we're allowed to open. As far as, you know, keeping surfaces clean, keeping people a little bit further apart. Um, for our part, we're looking to reduce class sizes, um, you know, to, to make it a little bit of a safer environment in the early stages. 
um, even with kids' clinics, making sure that the coaches will be the ones to handle the tennis balls, to pick the balls up, put them back in the hopper and those types of things. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not really sure, as the rest of the world isn't, what type of restrictions and what type of, um, I guess, guidelines or rules there will be for a safer environment for all of us, um, both in the sporting world and in everyday life. But uh, we're, we're making uh, some... I guess, decisions and guidelines for ourselves behind the scenes so that when we're ready to go back and when we're allowed to go back, we'll, we'll be ready and keen and eager to, to await people back to the tennis court for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm almost wondering if we have like a mass abolition of, of the tennis handshake. Are we going to uh, convert to the, the tennis elbow almost? Because uh, I, I could see a lot of people having trepidation about doing it uh, after what we've been going through now. Well, I know I've, I've played in a pickleball tournament. I played in a pickleball tournament that Carl Hale ran down at Hotel X, and uh, it was a lot of fun. And in the pickleball world, they don't actually shake hands. They just tap rackets. So that might be what tennis comes to mm. and what other sports like squash and um, things like that, even the hockey handshake at the end of uh, playoff hockey and, and, and international hockey, they might come to, you know, just tapping sticks and things like that. And I am sure that this pandemic will change a little bit in how the world views the handshake and the high five and things like that. And I think tennis will have to adapt a little bit. Um, I mean, while I've been away from the court, I've been making some, some tennis videos and some videos as far as things you can do away from a tennis court to work on your game. But when we do get back to a tennis court, I'm sure we'll see some changes like you speak of in the handshake and, and a few other things uh, you know, maybe the Bryan brothers were onto something with the chest pump years ago. Maybe that's what we have to go to. <laughs> yeah, it might uh, might be. Uh, that's that's a good place to transition, though. Uh, you, you saying you've been making some some videos. What are some uh, little tips for not only your members but but any tennis players who are kind of holed up in isolation, wanting to to stay active and, and have a feel for for the game without being able to physically get back on a court. Well, a few of the things that I uh, that I did and um, I put them up on our website on uh, MayfairClubs.com is one is you can practice your service toss with a, a basketball net. So on your driveway or at a, um, you know, you could you could even just kind of put a hoop up above you somehow in a tree aiming for a branch or anything like that. Um, just tossing the ball in the air and trying to get that consistency of having the ball go up through the basketball net or up into the meshing of the basketball net. For me as a tennis player, and I know that anybody listening that grew up playing against me, they're laughing right now because the weakest part of my game was my serve, even though I played a serve and volley type game. Um, so for me, I've used this opportunity to work on my service toss. So all those guys that are laughing right now, you better be <laughs> careful because I'll be ready to come back better than ever. Um, <laughs> you'll you'll so be ready to rock. Yeah, exactly. You can work on your service toss. I, I have a video up on that. Another one is uh, a 100-ball challenge. Uh, some of the tennis pros in the city have been talking about. So for my challenge, instead of hitting against um, a garage door or the side of a house, which is a little bit easier because it's a flat surface, I actually used a fence. So the ball would uh, kind of come off the fence, not always very straight. So I did a 100-ball challenge off a fence which was uh, kind of interesting. I made it to 104. I was a little winded at the end of it, but Mm -hmm. I did make it through. Um, And another one that I did was, uh, you know, we always see uh, professional tennis players when a guy kind of hits a ball or or a woman hits a ball long and um, maybe the ball's going way out of of play on a miss hit or something like that and it's already been, uh, you know, off of a dead point. The professional uh, player will catch the ball in midair with their racket without the ball bouncing. So, 
I did a video where you can kind of practice that at the end of your driveway, on your driveway, uh, even out on the street where you're kind of firing a ball into the air and then working on that that hand-eye coordination of catching the ball without it bouncing off of your string. So there are quite a few things that you can do just from the ball bouncing and the ball technique and the ball development skills. Um, you know, there was a, a lady that used to coach tennis when I was younger by the name of Vlasta Brankowski who used a gymnasium wall and her students weren't allowed to play on a regulation tennis court until they were able to hit 100 tennis balls in a row against a wall. Wow. And I always remember that her students were darn good and tough to beat. And, you know, there's something to be said for a wall never misses. So if you have a wall in your house, a wall in your garage, a a garage door where the ball bounces uh, nicely off of, if you can work on hitting against that, it'll really uh, take your game to the next level, that's for sure. Yeah, certainly, and th- those are all, all great suggestions. Uh, as, f- as for your role uh, in tennis, outside of being tennis director uh, of, of the Mayfair Clubs, you, you've been the voice and masters of ceremonies for, for Rogers Cup for a number of years. Uh, obviously, things are maybe a little in doubt. We really have no idea what our summer tennis schedule will look like, but uh, how did you first get started in, in that role? Well, funny enough, I was uh, I started on the side courts many, many years ago um, just as a volunteer with kind of some of the, um, you know, family clinics and, and family weekend clinics that they used to run with uh, Gaetan Perrault, who is the head pro and general manager of the Queen's Club in Toronto. Many tennis players will know him as Gator. Um, Gator and I ran those courts for years and years. And around the time that Stacey Allister was the tournament director of the Rogers Cup. She went on, as many listeners will remember, she went on to become the president of the WTA. Um, she kind of plucked me from the side courts and asked me if I would be the uh, voice for center court promotion. So I basically started with all the promotions on center court. And then um, when Don Goodwin um, decided to retire from being the center court announcer, I was promoted into his role uh, several years ago, and I, I will mention at this time that Don is no longer with us, and I, I miss him greatly. He was a, a good friend of tennis. Um, but uh, that's kind of how it worked out, and it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun over the years in learning and uh, developing kind of my own, I guess, style in, in doing the player announcements. And uh, I kind of announce a little bit like a, like a boxing announcer, maybe rather than a tennis announcer, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's worked in Toronto and in for Davis Cup and Fed Cup matches, so I'm sticking with it for now. No, that's that, that's excellent, and I, I gather you you also actually have have had an opportunity, maybe more more than once, uh, to to drive some players from their hotels uh, to on site, right to the venue. Is that true? And and if it is, uh, by chance, would you have any stories uh, to to share with with our listeners? Uh, about uh, driving maybe a particular player and uh, having a funny exchange or anything like that? Yes, I've been fortunate enough. I think I've done it. Uh, it's a camera car, and the uh, the feature car of the tournament each year kind of does a deal with Tennis Canada. We set up three or four cameras in a camera car, and I pick up typically anywhere from four to six players individually, um, one at a time in the car, and we drive uh, to... Uh, the, the York University site, the Aviva Center site, from their from their hotel, and I think maybe Milos Raonic was, I guess, my most comfortable one in that I joked around with him that I had played him in Men's Sunday Night League when he was 15 years old or 14 <laughs> years old, and it was uh, 
one of the best wins that I had ever had. <laughs> we were joking around like that. And then he kind of at the end of the, of the commercial segment or the 40-minute drive said to me, he goes, well, Ken, I appreciate the drive, and I just want to let all your listeners know that I do remember you beating me, but I wasn't 14 or 15 years old. I was only nine years old. <laughs> so I thought that was, uh, that was an awful lot of – that was good fun. Yep. And I guess another time was uh, Andy Murray. Um, he was in the car with me, and he was, uh, he was great. He was a little guarded. And uh, then I told him that uh, when Nestor, who I had always heard was one of Andy Murray's best friends, that when Nestor was 14 and 15 years old, I was the provincial coach, uh, one of uh, three provincial coaches on the Ontario team that Nestor was on. And, um, you know, I told him a few funny stories about Nestor, and then he called Nestor to make sure Nestor knew me and that I wasn't kind of pulling the wool over his eyes. And and then Andy Murray really kind of relaxed and kind of opened up a little bit more. And, you know, it's tough for these professional athletes because they never really know, you know, who's who and – who's on their side, who isn't on their side. So I always made it known right at the start that I was, I was really just a, a tennis pro from Scarborough. And if I asked them a question they didn't like, we would skip it. But I tried to get them to open up and some of them would sing. Um, some of them would sing their national anthem. Some of them would sing happy birthday. Some of them would call a friend. It was, it was always a lot of fun. It was almost like a mixture of uh, comedy and karaoke in the uh, in the car on the way to the Rogers Cup that's for sure <laughs> yeah I'm sure you have more than just a, a few stories uh, to tell and uh, I, I should say even if you beat a nine-year-old Milos Raonic I don't think it diminishes the victory I, I still think that's solid I agree. He was still serving big at nine, so uh, I'm taking it as a good win. (laughs) There you go. Well, uh, Ken, uh, thanks so much for for joining us uh, on the show to talk a little little tennis and and obviously discuss the situation. I'm sure it is a difficult time. Well, it's a difficult time for everybody, but uh, many tennis players uh, like like you and I obviously want to get back on the court, so we we appreciate you sharing some some tips with our listeners uh, before they can get back to playing. No problem. I'm always happy to help out and uh, listen to your podcast quite regularly. So I appreciate the effort you guys are putting in. And I remind our listeners to uh, stay a healthy distance away from people. And uh, let's work at this together to flatten the curve and uh, get Toronto, Canada and the world healthy again and uh, get us all back doing the things that we really love. And for most of us, uh, we really love tennis and we're looking forward to those days again. Absolutely. Ken Krasina, our tennis director from the Mayfair Clubs, also the voice of Rogers Cup. There you have it, my interview with Ken Krosina, who, Mike, I, I know you know personally, and obviously that is a familiar voice when you come to the tournament in Toronto, like year after year, and he has not only that, that great booming Masters of Ceremonies voice, uh, but also great interactions with players. He also makes me feel great about no longer having much hair on top of my head. And I got to say, uh, following in Ken's footsteps in, uh, footsteps in that regard is uh, something I'm proud to do. Uh, great guy all around who, yeah, I've gotten to know over the years at, at Rogers Cup. And uh, from coaching some high school tennis where we normally have the uh, uh, Toronto championships at the Mayfair Club, getting to see him there as well. And uh, I didn't know actually that he had a connection to the Mayfair Clubs. I just knew him at first as the rogers cup guy the mc on center court until i showed up at mayfair once and saw his picture hanging on the wall and i was like what the heck is he doing here Mm. um so uh different levels to ken but obviously a tennis lover through and through and um yeah nice to hear him talking about ways that you can stay 
uh, active and some drills that you can do at home through this time that they're sharing with their their members. And uh, it was fun to listen to the two of you talk about his memories of driving Milos uh, on the drive from, uh, well, I guess it wasn't from the hotel because Milos lives in the GTA, but maybe driving him from home to the Aviva Center. And, uh, hey, I would still brag about beating a nine-year-old Milos. I don't know about you. <laughs> I, I absolutely would. And uh, we're going to share a, a particular photo uh, for this <laughs> podcast, uh, which features Ken and features Novak Djokovic. And uh, you have the story behind taking this photo, which was interesting to me. Yeah, this was from a few years back when Novak won here in Toronto against Kay Nishikori. And you never know with Novak what he's going to do after a match, especially when he's feeling good from winning a tournament. And he suggested to the crowd in his post-match victory speech, he wanted to see everybody turn to their neighbor, whether they knew them or not, on center court and give them a hug. And for a moment, everyone was kind of looking around like, is he like legit? And even Kay Nishikori had this look on his face like, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> and then Novak's like, no, I'm serious. And he turned and he wrapped his arms around Ken Christina, uh, the MC. And I managed to snap a picture of it, which I'm sure we'll use for our promotions this week. And the look on Ken's face is pretty priceless. And that kind of made everybody in the crowd. Well, I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people in the crowd kind of loosen up and say, ah, you know what? Let's go for it and, and hug the person who's standing next to them. That's uh, that's pretty funny. I, I should mention, uh, for those of you guys who are looking to stay active, and Ken mentioned this in the interview, uh, you can check out MayfairClubs.com. They're running free workouts and tennis training tips uh, to keep your game sharp. Uh, you know, if you get sick of all the Roger Federer drills and want to change it up, uh, check out their website uh, to change uh a few things up and get a few ideas to stay active uh, during the quarantine and lockdown. Uh, Mike, our final segment of the episode, and this was making the rounds on Twitter last week, uh, and you can argue and nitpick all you want, but I, I find these fun building the perfect tennis player. And I, I know Rafael Nadal actually did it on a YouTube video like a month ago, but uh, now all the pundits are weighing in. And uh, I, I thought it would be fun if we gave it a try on this episode. Yeah, now two things that you've got to keep in mind here if you're listening, okay, is this is obviously difficult because, A, I can't claim, nor can you, to have seen players from every generation of tennis. Very true. Uh, you know, Rod Laver sounds like an amazing guy, a really stoic figure in tennis, great mm -hmm. accomplishments. I've never really watched, you know, a, a Rod Laver match, I've got to admit, okay? Yep. Uh, and I, even though I grew up watching tennis in the 80s and have memories of, you know, McEnroe, Connors, um, Becker, Edberg, that was as a kid, so I wasn't watching necessarily with a critical kind of an eye. So yeah. that's one thing you've got to keep in mind. And the other is when it comes to things like this, you're bound to tick some people off with your predictions, and people are going to be shaking their heads and shaking their fists, and, oh, what are you guys <laughs> talking about? I just deal with it, okay? This is, uh, you know, just something fun that we're, we're trying to do, and uh, God knows we could use a little fun. I've, like I said, I've had one of those days where I'm so happy to talk to you right now, Ben, this is the, the highlight of my day so far. And, and my wife, God bless her, is back from work and keeping an eye on the kids right now because we needed a little separation. So 
I'm happy to talk forehands, backhands, greatest serve, returns. Let's drag this out for as long as we can. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm happy to as well. This is one of my highlights uh, of every week. Uh, do you want to begin on the men's side? And, and I have my list here and uh, you can respond as I begin. Does that make sense? Yeah, you, you lead the men. I'll lead with the women later and then we can uh, respond to each other as we go through. Okay, uh, that sounds good. And I'll, I'll just preface this by saying all the names I do have here are players from this era and then just one player from the 90s. But I'll start on the men's side. And this, I was really torn on the forehand side, and people generally debate these two. But I'm going Roger Federer with the best forehand in, in the history of the men's game. And uh, Rafael Nadal, an incredibly close second. But if you look sort of at the pattern of Roger Federer and his ability to completely control the back of the court with that forehand wing, especially when he completely dominated like 2003 to 2007, I think it's kind of like an untouchable shot at times when it's really clicking. It's funny because that time frame now, you say 2003, and I'm thinking, oh my God, like that was so long yeah. ago to remember what Federer was like back at that time. And to think now he's still, you know, a top three, a top five guy uh, is, is just incredible. Uh, more incredible than that is the fact that you picked Federer over Nadal. I've got to say that. I didn't see that coming <laughs> no from you, Ben Lewis. And I know that deep down and, and going back to pre-media days you definitely leaned a certain way sort of to the left you could say <laughs> that's true and a, an honorable mention just for sheer power goes to uh, Juan Martin Del Potro by the mm-hmm. way uh, but mm-hmm. he doesn't take the cake for me backhand side this one to me was uh, a little more obvious I think and uh, he's the number one player in the world right now Novak Djokovic the two-handed backhand is uh, not not only maybe the best backhand we've ever seen but really one of the best shots in, in tennis and maybe Andre Agassi would put up a fight for second place but for me that one is Novak all the way yeah I loved watching Agassiz growing up as a kid and just how efficient it was and how he just dictated and moved you know side to side his opponents but Djokovic is uh will definitely agree has uh, more variety and more to it and how he can hit that backhand even when he's on the run doing one of his gumby slides or stretches <laughs> or splits on the court it makes for some of the most compelling pictures uh, tennis pictures I've ever seen, let alone watching it live or watching it in uh, in full swing and video too. Yeah, absolutely. Moving to the serve and uh, shout out to Ivo Karlovic, but I did not give him this title. Uh, to me, John Eisner possesses uh, the best serve that uh, tennis has ever seen and, and results kind of speak for themselves. He's finished inside the top 20 of the rankings in 10 consecutive seasons and John Eisner probably frequently has the worst return game it's, uh, of any player in the top one so he is reliant on that serve it's absolutely massive if you've ever caught it in person and the second serve is huge too uh and it's led him to get wins over the big three and uh, Wimbledon semi-final a couple years ago yeah Isner's serve is definitely up there for me in terms of ones I'd never want to face in a tennis court or even sit behind the returner on a tennis court mm-hmm. um I'm going to also throw out there and it wasn't as as hard as fast but it sure had some pop and that's Pistol Pete Sampras yeah uh, not just the speed or the velocity but the placement and how he could summon that serve at such crucial moments. I was more of an Agassi fan growing up, but I had a lot of respect for Pete Sampras, and it just always seemed when your favorite player had a breakpoint opportunity against him, boom, there was an ace at a clutch time 
in a clutch match at a Grand Slam. And so for his timing and his ability to deliver when you needed it the most, I got to put Pete Sampras up there too. Yeah, definitely one of the, the most clutch servers I think ever. We'll go to the volley. This is my one player who is outside of this current era. And uh, I, I could have given this one to Roger Federer. I think his hands are, are incredible. I could, could have given it to a doubles player. Maybe shout out to Daniel Nestor, one of the Brian brothers. Uh, but I picked Pat Rafter. Uh, two mm, U.S. Nice. Open titles, two Wimbledon finals. And, and really it felt like he was one of the last few players to really consistently employ the serve and volley with such effectiveness. Obviously, Pete Sampras being another. We see it sometimes from Roger Federer, but Pat Rafter was an absolute wizard at the net. Yeah, you said it. Someone who serve and volleyed all the time. You just knew it was coming. And yeah, one of the last that really employed that tactic so frequently. I'm glad you gave it to a real serve and volleyer because I think it's it's deserved. And uh, for me, Stefan Edberg, who was just so fluid and graceful mm-hmm. and had such um, uh, poise and such a an ability to, to be in the right spots. Uh, he was beautiful to watch as well with his volleys in the late 80s, early 90s. And, and so I'd go with, uh, with Stefan for this one. But Rafter, a great choice as well. Thank you. And a few more to go. Return side, Andre Agassi gets an honorable mention here. Nadal does too, but uh, Novak Djokovic, I think it's, uh, if there's any weapon that's stronger than his backhand, it is the return of serve. Next level, next level stuff. Agassi, as you said, certainly for his time was, was known for, for being that guy. And, uh, and again, Djokovic, as these big three have done in different ways with different shots, taken the game to a whole other level for sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, mental toughness. Djokovic uh, gets an honorable mention for me. I, I think right now and maybe over the past, you know, maybe even the past eight to 10 years, he is could you could argue has been the the most mentally tough player but to me one who has just perfectly sustained that mental toughness through the entirety of his career has been uh, Rafael Nadal and uh, we've seen it at so many different moments in huge matches uh, wiggling his way out of uh, crucial moments saving break points coming up with a huge forehand pass when he needs it uh, that that's why he's one of the most electrifying players we've ever seen and uh, yeah I, I think Nadal just exudes mental toughness but for for me, it's kind of a flip of the coin between him and Novak. For me, and I'll keep this succinct on this one, uh, I just think of if my life was on the line, mm-hmm. which player would I want out there for me? And without a doubt, I'm going to go with Rafa. So I'm in agreement with you on that one. And I need to applaud you for not choosing Rafa for every category. You did a good <laughs> job at mixing it up. Right. Uh, I was almost expecting like a Riley Opelka who picked uh, Alex Dimenauer for every category oh, on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, I saw that. Which was, uh, which was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, but good for you for uh, for being open-minded and unbiased. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, well, speaking of Alex Dimenauer, our last category being speed, I, I don't think I've seen enough of Alex Dimenauer. The, the career is a little too short to give him the nod. But uh, in terms of most bang for your buck, most entertaining player, this name comes to mind, and he's ridiculously fast on the court is uh, Gael Mofis is my pick for speed. Yeah, and entertainment value too. If there was a speed and entertainment value, I'd for sure go with Mofis. For me, just thinking speed alone and, and again, hearkening back to the era that I grew up watching, so I've got a real affinity for these guys. Uh, Michael Chang was oh, such yeah. a scrambler. Yep. And he was short. Like Michael Chang was only, I think, 5'7", maybe 5'8". And uh, boy, did he ever move out there side to side, never giving up. Won one Grand Slam, the French Open, in part because of his uh, his quick 
footwork. So Michael Chang would be my go-to on that uh, sort of nostalgic note, I guess. All right. Well, we'll shift over to the women's side and uh, I'll let you take the lead and, and I'll respond. Okay, let's do it. And uh, so for top forehand, I'm going with the owner of 22 Grand Slams, and that was Steffi Graf, and that was her uh, bread and butter shot. She loved that forehand so much. She'd run around the backhand uh, every opportunity she got to uh, hit that cross-court forehand winner, and she could hit it from everywhere, and it was the weapon. And uh, like I said, 22 Grand Slams, which is only one behind Serena Williams, Certainly until Serena and, and, and Venus came along, Graf was put up on that high pedestal and uh, never thought that someone would get close to her. And, uh, and then obviously Serena has surpassed it. So forehand to me, Steffi Graf. And if I'm thinking in more recent times, I think Arena Sabalenka's forehand really has the opportunity to do some damage in the coming years. It's just scary to watch that thing in action. Yeah, it's uh, massive. The The forehand here uh, was actually probably the one shot out of the, all these categories that I, I didn't have much debate at all. I, I wrote Steffi Graf kind of immediately. It was her signature shot. And uh, if you go back now even and, and watch Steffi Graf highlights from the 80s and 90s, you still see uh, the pop and the pace on that shot. Like it, it would still play up today. Uh, it, it doesn't look like it's aged one bit. Uh, definitely just like one of those signature signature shots in women's tennis one of the best ever it's funny how she's married to andre agassi who's got one of the best backhands ever so what <laughs> you could a, use those two to build the, the perfect perfect player yeah right yeah. yeah uh if we move on to the backhand um for me i got a, a one-hander and a, and a two-hander to uh to go with here and and i should say again chris everett was before my my time but uh i've heard nothing but great things about how consistent that backhand was for her and if if you didn't grow up watching Chris Everett, go and check out her Grand Slam results because it's just sick to see how well she did and for such a long period of time. But the two I'm putting forth on the backhand, Justine Hennen for her oh, one-hand yeah. backhand, which was just nasty to watch. The the angles, oh my God, the angles. I'm replaying it in my head right now <laughs> that she could get off that one-hand backhand was really something else. And for the two-hander, uh, a player who had a two-hand backhand and forehand, and that was Monica Sellis who used it so well to keep Steffi Graf at bay over the course of uh, her career. And that was a great rivalry to watch between those two players, of course. Yeah, certainly uh, two fantastic backhands right there. I went with a different direction. Uh, I probably agree with you on the one-handed backhand, but uh, in terms of backhand overall, and she played with a two-hander as as most players do, Venus Williams uh, is my pick, actually. Uh, such a threat on that backhand side, especially when she was racking up Wimbledon titles, five of them. To me, that was always her best shot and and the cross court backhand in particular I, I think was her best shot uh, so feared so powerful uh that that wing for her was spectacular and, and definitely one of the best i've got her on my short list for that too although i use venus for one of the other categories so oh. i think i was trying to spread the love yep um but if we talk about biggest serve i'm going to go with her sister serena of yes. course not the hardest serve uh, amongst women all time. That honor belongs to Germany's Sabine Lissicki, uh, who had one at 131 miles per hour. Also back in the day, uh, Brenda Schultz-McCarthy had a real bomb. But Serena, in terms of not just the speed, not just the ace count, but again, big moments and something that's helped her to get to her 23 Grand Slams. And also looking at her second serve, there isn't really a huge dip between first and second. Serena's second is also very dangerous and such an important consideration for me when I was looking at at this category. 
Yeah, certainly. Uh, I have Serena, Serena Williams uh, as my top one, and I, I didn't have to give it that much consideration. I was kind of thinking of who could really challenge her. But but to me, that's been maybe the most powerful shot in, in women's tennis history. And as you mentioned, like so many key moments when she's facing deficits in matches and, and in her service games where she can rely on a massive first serve to, to pull her out of it. And we're talking serves that like are 120 plus, 125, which is just something the women's game had never ever seen and really still doesn't see today uh so certainly like serena could be kind of in contention for probably all of these categories uh so you have to give her the serve and for someone like me who neither has a first nor a second serve there's a high level of jealousy when i'm looking at some of these players <laughs> yeah. and what they're able to do right yeah no you kidding. give me 10 serves and it wouldn't do me any good but anyhow <laughs> Um, the return game, the return game, um, mine is also equally as weak. But um, from both sides, I've got Monica Sellis there. The two-handed forehand return, the two-handed backhand return uh, stood into the court, wasn't afraid of, uh, of challenging and being aggressive. And so I'm going to put her on there. It's, obviously, it's such a shame of how her career was derailed by that unfortunate uh, attack that she suffered on the court uh, in Germany years ago. And came back, you know, valiantly came back and did have some success. A lot of success in Canada, actually, at the Rogers Cup in both Montreal and Toronto, uh, but was never the same, unfortunately, after that. But there were a few years there where she really flipped that, uh, that tide and that momentum that Steffi Graf had. And a lot of that was because of her return game. Yeah, certainly the, that stretch that she had, like 1991 into 1993, she was practically invincible. In 91, 92, she won three Grand Slams each with the Aussie, French, and U.S. Open. Uh, felt unstoppable at the time. I, I had two names like written in here. Monica Sellis was one. And then I'm actually going to give the nod because uh, I wanted to fit her into the list somewhere. Maria Sharapova, especially vintage Maria Sharapova, had one of the most feared returns uh, in the women's game she had no problem pulling the trigger at any time particularly on a second serve Serena was the same way and uh, Sharapova in her heyday I I think had one of the most feared returns ever you'd see how often she would break serve and and pile on the pressure on her opponent and and we know how hard and flat she hits on both wings Uh, just just the look on her face when oh, she was yeah. waiting to return to her. <laughs> right. My so goodness, intimidating. was that ever intimidating? Yeah, yeah for sure. absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and she didn't win those five Grand Slams by accident. I, I think that was actually her ultimate weapon. So linked with, with intimidation uh, is mental toughness. Yep. And uh, I'm going to give that one to Serena Williams as well. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, we could give a lot of these categories to Serena, but when you're 23 and six in Grand Slam finals, uh, mental toughness doesn't come much better than that. And uh, again, just watching her during her matches and how emotionally invested she is and just how fierce she is of a competitor on the court. Uh, it's going to be tough for me to think of someone else on the women's game that's more mentally tough than what Serena Williams has done over the course of the last 20 years. Yeah, almost impossible. And uh, I, I even think back to our 2019 U.S. Open when Serena was storming back in that second set against Bianca Andreescu. How terrified, how many Canadians were thinking, oh, no, not again. She's going to pull this off. Uh, I could pe- barely breathe watching that. Like, I literally <laughs> had to remind myself to breathe because I was like, oh, this is not good. What's yeah, happening here? That's right. That's right. Uh, I should mention her record, by the way, in doubles Grand Slam titles, 14-0 and 0 with Venus. So, like a slight honorable mention for Venus and her mental toughness as well. Uh, But yeah, I think uh, Serena's number one on my list as well. 
I got two categories that are left here. One is uh, speed and movement. And I've got a little question here for myself, which is in what direction? Because some players mm. have so much speed going north-south and getting into the net. Yep. Uh, Martina Navratilova comes to mind, of course. But then perhaps not the greatest at lateral movement going side to side. Um, Steffi Graf, again, to me, had such great, great court coverage. Uh, I read somewhere that Graf uh, had a speed in the 100 meters that would have qualified her uh, for the Olympics if she so choose, wow. chosen back back in the day. Uh, I didn't have time to uh, to verify that, but I don't doubt it. Um, so for me, I'm going to go with, with Steffi Graf for all-around uh, court movement and speed. And uh, another one from back in the day, Amanda Kutzer from South Africa. She was really tiny. I want to say like five foot two, five foot three. Mm-hmm. And I remember her being really, really quick around the court. She gave Graf uh, some really good battles over the years and and her foot speed was the main reason for that my uh my number one here uh recently retired and and retired actually uh after the 2020 australian open her one and only grand slam and of course she was world number one for a handful of weeks as well and I, i know she's probably not the fastest player that women's tennis has ever seen but in terms of spectacular court coverage caroline wozniacki i think was completely fantastic and uh yeah you hit on the the lateral movement which i think wozniacki just covered the court like every angle of the court so exceptionally well it felt like for a lot of players they had to win the point like five times over to actually get a point against her uh, especially in her prime uh so i'm giving the shout out to to wozniacki in that category yeah, strong choice. And and I'm going to go off topic for a second here. But you know what this is reminding me of? It's just Caroline is, is full of these videos on uh, Instagram these days yes. with her husband, David Lee, uh, and still in terrific shape, hasn't been retired for that long. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's any retired players that are going to look at this break and say, hey, wait a minute, everyone's having a break. Yeah. I'm still in great shape. Maybe I'll come back and do the, the Kim Kleister's attempt or, or something along those lines. I wonder if we'll get a player, male or female, maybe a couple of players even that decide, you know what, I'm going to come back with everybody and see uh, see what I've got. Yeah, I, I mean, I certainly had that thought of the timing of Maria Sharapova's retirement. Obviously, like she's had a lot of issues with the shoulder, uh, but it, it certainly has crossed my mind. And as you said, like Caroline Wozniacki's po- posting these fitness videos and current players are going into her mentions being like, what? You're supposed to be retired. <laughs> You're fitter than me. This isn't fair. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Who knows, right? Yeah. Um, my last category, and, and this is a player who um, I, I want to guess she's in her late, late 50s, maybe 60, almost now. Uh, I still feel she could come back and compete in doubles anyways, and this category is best volleyer, mm-hmm. and that, without a doubt for me, is Martina Navratilova, 167 career titles. Let that sink in, okay? On the men's side, we got Jimmy and his 109. Uh, 18 single slams, 41 in doubles. That's between doubles and mixed doubles. Unbelievable. And that's in large part to her comfort at the net, her incredible hand-eye coordination, and uh, the ability to put away the ball when she came up. And uh, her career lasted seemingly forever. Uh, She was winning titles into the 2000s in doubles even, which is just absolutely remarkable. And I really don't doubt that you could pair Martina right now with a top doubles player, and they'd be a threat in uh, in women's doubles. Hundred percent, I'm right with you. I didn't I didn't think there was any other choice for best volleyer of all time on the women's side. Martina Navratilova is who it is. 177 doubles titles, as you mentioned, 167 in singles, and yeah, 63 years old right now. But like, yeah, I feel if, if she could partner up with 
any solid singles player right now in mixed doubles or women's doubles and guaranteed uh, would be a threat to at least win a couple matches. She's that good. And talk about somebody I'd love to have on the podcast. And so maybe now that we've recorded this wonderfully mm. positive um, dialogue about her great volley, maybe we can send her a little clip of this and perhaps that will convince her to come and join us at some point. <laughs> so if anyone out there has a Martina connection, I'd really love to uh, to chat with her. Yes, that would be fantastic. Always fun uh, breaking down. And, and we didn't seem to disagree as much as I was anticipating, surprisingly. No, you know why? Because I've spent my day disagreeing with little people in my household. <laughs> okay. That um, I just, I guess it was the opposite. I just needed to be on the same page as someone. And Ben, it turns out that's you today. Oh, well, uh, I'll take <laughs> it. Uh, anyway, this has been a lot of fun. And, and thanks again for sticking with our podcast uh, during the quarantine and during the lockdown. And thanks to our guest this week, uh, tennis CEO and president Michael Downey and Ken Crosina, a voice of the Rogers Cup. This has been Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time. I've swallowed my pride for you, lived a life for you, but you still make me feel like a thief. You got me stealing your love away, cause you never give it. Peeling the years away, and we can't relive it. Oh, I make you laugh, and you make me cry. It's time for me to fly.